Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. If you're a guest with us, we are continuing in our study in the book of Hebrews and picking up where we left off just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, last week, obviously, as our uh, sort of fall um, uh, kicked off and our new uh, calendar year kicks off, we uh, took a quick break from that. Um, but now we're returning back to our study in the book of Hebrews. If you are a guest with us, um, you haven't sort of been uh, along w- with us through this journey of Hebrews, just want to invite you, wherever you find a podcast, you can find those sermons. You can go back and listen to those um, and catch up with us. We are probably, uh, I think, just about a month away from finishing this up, so you'll have a little bit of work to catch up, but just think of all the, all the, all the time that you'll get to burn in your car listening to God's Word being expounded. So it'll be a good use. So join us and catch up with us, but let's pick up in 9. Uh, We're going to start this morning with verse 11. But as uh, just a little bit of a reminder and background for you, um, this series, what we have seen, the author of Hebrews and what he is doing is helping us to see Jesus for who he is, which is greater than all of those that might have preceded him. Jesus is greater than the angels who were viewed and obviously understood to be um, angelic powers of God, greater than the Old Testament prophets that taught people God's word and spoke to people on behalf of God, greater than even the priesthood who were at this time the mediators between God and, and, and would serve such a great purpose to minister to the people. And obviously they were the ones who would there go and make sacrifice for sin and to lead the people into um, a time of atonement. Jesus, as it says there on the slide, is greater than all of those. And in the beginning of chapter 9, the author of Hebrews is um, establishing for us this understanding of the new covenant, and that even the old covenant, this covenant that was made by God with his people, um, that was simply a pointer to what Jesus would do. It was a shadow, as it's described, of, of what Jesus would accomplish and what he would do. In the first half of chapter 9, is described all of the tabernacle and the tent where God would meet with his people and God had given Moses very clear instructions on exactly how the people should come into the tent and should come into worship and all of the ceremonial law that sort of followed along with that. And in doing so, again, every bit of that was pointing to Jesus who would one day make the final sacrifice for sin. The priest would no longer have to continually make sacrifice for sin, but would do that, Jesus would do that once and for all. So with that, we look at verse 11, picking up in verse 11 of chapter nine. When Christ appeared, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, and remember that Christ has been elevated as a high priest that's above all of the other high priests, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which you heard Caleb preach on about a month ago. Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest. Jesus was a, a, a priest after this line, a king and a priest. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the tent that was made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ comes as high priest in fulfillment and in a sense to replace the priesthood who had served a purpose under God's law for a season, 
But here as high priest, he comes to fulfill what they could not fulfill. And it says in verse 12 that he entered once for all into the holy places and not by the means of some other sacrifice. See, there have been previously the priesthood would sacrifice goats or bulls. And this was the blood sacrifice that was offered to God to atone for sin. And it was through that sacrifice that people were able to come in and enter into relationship with God, enter into his presence. But the law could not do that forever. It was hindered. This is why it says that Christ entered in as the greater and more perfect. He entered in through the sacrifice of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What this shows us is, is what the law could not do, Jesus did. The law had been given for a purpose, and the law had served the people. It was, again, a means to point to Jesus and to point to what he would come and do finally. But it was insufficient. It was insufficient because it did not offer an eternal sacrifice. More than that, the law teaches us, or what we see in the law, is that all it can do is restrain and inform us of our sinfulness. It cannot cleanse us of our sinfulness. This is why he continues in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the same or with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God. So we see two things here as we look at verses 12 and 14 with more focus. See, under the old covenant, sin was only temporarily cleansed. The priests would have to enter into the holy place on a regular basis, on an annual basis. They would make atonement for the sins of the people. Then they would leave and they'd have to keep doing that over and over and over again. There was even, it's described by this, and this is, I know, a little bit more detail than you might have been prepared for, but there were channels that were created in the temple to allow the blood to flow out because there was that much sacrifice having to be done over and over and over again on behalf of the sinfulness of the people. And under the old covenant, it could only be temporarily cleansed. And this cleansing was also only surface level. It did not transform the worshipers. Their hearts weren't changed. They would come in, the priest would offer atonement for their sins, they would go out, and they would come back in later and doing that over and over and over again in this cycle. But look at what it says again more closely in verse 12. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. An eternal redemption, a redemption that will not go away, does not have to be reconstituted on an annual basis, but it's an eternal redemption. His blood secures for us something that the law could never secure for us. What the law could not do, Jesus did. And then look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify what? Not just our external situation, but purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God. Purify our conscience. So not only do we have this external purification 
that is eternal, we also have this internal purification. Our consciences are transformed. Not just an external cleansing, but an internal work of God. The people's hearts were not transformed through the sacrifices of calves and goats. Their consciences weren't redeemed. They were left to ultimately dead works, it says. They kept trying, kept trying to make their way to God, kept trying and having to do uh, ceremonial practices in order to be made right before God. Dead works. Conversely, when Christ came as the greater sacrifice and the final sacrifice for sins, and when our hope is put in him, we have this eternal cleansing and eternal redemption, but we also have this internal cleansing that takes place. It lasts. Our hearts are transformed. If you've ever wondered, and yes, we have fickle hearts and we have to battle the flesh, and Paul wrote a lot of letters, and that's another sermon series to get to. But have you, have you ever wondered, why is it that we constantly have this battle? Perhaps it's because we have not understood what Christ has done fully. Our consciences haven't been transformed. We've been trying on this sort of religious game for a little bit. And perhaps you're here this morning so that you can see and understand that Christ, as our great high priest, has made a final sacrifice, a sacrifice that will transform your soul internally. You know, when we travel, this might help paint a little bit of a picture for you. When we travel, we go through a security check um, when you go by plane. And I'm sure most of us are familiar with that security. We walk in and um, we have to, you know, disrobe to various degrees, um, unpack all of our baggage before God and everybody, um, just everything sort of gets sort of taken out, and then we have to go through this security and um, then walk into this tunnel that, you know, makes me think of Quantum Leap. I'm about to get transported back in time. Um, man, y'all, 2,000 babies don't know Dr. Beckett. I'm sorry. <laughs> we have to go through all this stuff to be screened to make sure that we're secure. And guess what? Every single time you travel, if you travel by plane, you're going to have to do that over and over and over and over again. Some of you guys are world travelers. You do this every single week and you go in. Except for those world travelers more than likely have a little bit of a special recognition. A little green check that says TSA Pre on their boarding pass. And if you have that on your boarding pass, the federal government has deemed that you no longer have to disrobe, take out your baggage, have to do any of these things. You're kind of cleansed. We sort of recognize you as a safe traveler. You can go through, and all you have to do is just sort of walk through and wave at the guy, be nice, drop off a Starbucks, and you're good. That is not prescriptive, by the way. Don't try that tomorrow when you fly. But in a very silly way, and that just pales to try and paint the picture. Under this old covenant... We're constantly having to be reinspected, constantly having to go through security, constantly having to be checked and sort of coming before God, atoning for our sins. And through Christ, we have this eternal redemption and we have an internal cleansing. We've been previously vetted, in a sense, through Christ. And notice what it says there in 15 then, because of this, this is why we can 
live and our consciences can be cleared from dead works and we can serve the living God. And this is why we can have this eternal redemption. It's because Jesus is our mediator. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We have a mediator. A mediator is someone who is required when there's two parties in conflict. We have two parties in conflict. Very often a mediator can come and bring those parties together, perhaps a legal disagreement or whatever the case may be. A mediator will come and will sort of navigate the two parties and help them to solve their problem, so to come to a bit of a solution to their problem. But when you have a mediator, one of the things you can know then is if there's a mediator present, there are two parties in conflict. And so if we understand that we have Christ as our mediator, we can realize, well, then that means we were in need of a mediator. That means that there was some conflict between us and God. This tells us of the effects of sin. This tells us why sin is a real issue. This tells us that sin is not just some temporal thing, but has eternal consequences. We know this, we can also know this just from God's word. Obviously, we see the mediator there referenced, but God said in the garden that Adam and Eve, if they ate of the fruit of the tree, that they would surely die. Yes, they died a physical death, but more importantly, they died a spiritual death. The spiritual death was much worse. They were separated from God. Once they had had perfect fellowship with God, they were naked and unashamed and able to walk in the garden. All the sixth graders' heads just perked up. And that's how they lived with God in perfect fellowship with him. And then sin entered into the world. And they were cast out and they were separated from God. Once they had union with him. And now they could no longer be with him. Romans 6.23 in our New Testament expounds on this. For the wages of sin is death. Sin is a real issue. And our sinfulness, the Bible describes it, puts us at enmity with God. That God and man are separated by this. Sin is a real issue. And I know our culture doesn't like to talk about sin. Doesn't want to really ever deal with that. But it is a real issue. Because it leads to death. It leads to death. Now some would say, perhaps even you might argue in this room, you may say, but pastor, why would God condemn his people, people that he loves? He's, God is loving. Why would he condemn them to death? How could a loving God condemn anyone? You might ask. Well, first thing is, he would cease to be God if he did not condemn sin. Because if he did not condemn sin, his holiness and his justice would now be in check. He could not be the holy God that he is, completely other and separated from sinfulness. He could not be just because he would not be dealing with sin. Just imagine, moms and dads, for just a moment, if your children who betray whatever sort of Issues they might do, small in comparison to some of the big things of life. We know, as human beings, we know that there must be some checks put in those things. We must correct, we must rebuke, we must teach and direct. 
How much more does our heavenly father know that sin has to be dealt with? He is so much more holy than any of us, so much more righteous. His justice is at stake. And so because he is God, he has to deal with sin. There had to be an atonement made. Blood had to be shed to atone for it. But yes, in answer to your first question, God is so loving that he says that he would send his only son For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but will be given eternal life. God is so loving that he made a way for us to be redeemed. He didn't just separate us and our sin doesn't just separate us and create this gap between God and man that he doesn't have a solution for. And his eternal solution from time past, not plan B, was that he would send his son and that son would be the mediator of a new covenant, a new promise of God, a new promise of God still sealed with blood but sealed once and for all through the blood of his own son, through God himself. He would provide the means through which we would be redeemed. And again, that redemption would be eternal. That redemption would be ultimately cleansing internally. What the law could not do, Jesus did. And what Jesus did was better than the law. I'm running out of time, and so you're going to have to study this middle section on your own this afternoon. Hebrews 9, 23 through 28 essentially describes for us how Jesus' sacrifice is better. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, that's the earthly things that were before Jesus came, things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into a holy place made with hands, which are copies, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The sacrifice that Jesus made was better. Jesus didn't enter into a temporary and earthly tent and make a sacrifice once that he has to go back and do again. He made that sacrifice, it's better because it was not for himself, but it was on our behalf. And it was not repeatedly had to be offered, it's something that was offered, it says, once and for all. What the law could not do, Jesus did. And Jesus did it much better. And here's where I want to close as we continue looking and we jump down to Hebrews chapter 10. What Jesus did, nothing else can do. This idea of once and for all that's described at the end of chapter 9, he expounds upon in chapter 10. What Jesus did, the annual sacrifices never could do. Their intended purpose was simply to point to the coming Messiah, to point to Jesus and what he would come and do. And if we look at Hebrews 10, verse 12, we can see this more clearly. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. A single sacrifice. There would be no future sacrifices made because what Jesus did on the cross, his shed blood was enough 
And we know it was enough because God accepted that sacrifice when he said, come and sit at my right hand. It is done. It is paid. Sin has been once and for all atoned for. This explains the fallacy that so many of us get wrapped up in, trying to balance our good, whatever things that we can measure up and sort of try to bring before God against our sin. Do you know that cannot be done, friends? There's nothing that would ever measure up to that. We try to sort of peel together, well, I've done this and I've done this and I kind of served my neighbor over here and I gave over here a little bit and I time and served. We add all these things up and we try to bring these before God as if to say, yeah, I know about this. Don't worry about, don't look over there, God. Just kind of, let me show you this little bowl that I've got of all my good stuff. And it never measures up. It can't be done. My sin Our sin is too much. It cannot be done. And conversely, this also explains the fallacy of trying to atone for your own sin, trying to make some sort of sacrifice or to deal with your own sin in your own way. So often, as I meet with many of you and have conversations about your life, we catch up for a coffee or whatever, opportunity we have to get together and I hear these types of phrases all the time so just know if you've said this I'm not quoting you personally it's everyone says this to me yeah I need to be in church more if I see someone in public I can just guarantee you they're going to tell me yeah I know I've kind of been missing a little bit you know (laughs) I need to do better I I just I just need I, I I'm I'm not a very good Christian I need to go do this or that Now, that Holy Spirit conviction of those things, that's right and worthwhile. And Paul, again, he wrote a bunch of letters about that. That's another sermon series. Those are all lies. We can't do better than Jesus. We can't do more than Jesus. We can't sacrifice enough to measure up to Jesus. He's done it all. He's paid the final sacrifice. And so as we walk around through this life trying to, in a sense, persecute ourselves to in some way atone for the sins that we have committed, thinking that if we just do this, we sort of beat ourselves down enough, then maybe we might be right before God. We're missing the point. We need to run to Jesus. We need to recognize what he has done. Listen, friends. Come January, I know we're sort of right here in the middle of the year, but I'm gonna go ahead and forecast what's gonna happen in January. We're gonna write a bunch of lists about all these things we're gonna do better at. We're gonna eat differently, we're gonna work out more, we're gonna go to, we're gonna go to church more, we're gonna give more, we're gonna, you're gonna write all these things down. In February, you're gonna fail at every single one of them. Sorry, I love you, but it's just the truth. There's like two of you that are in August, and yep, I've got my, my January list is still going, all right? We're going to fail at these little temporal things, things that don't matter. Do you think that there's something that we could do, that we could do it consistently enough to atone for our sinfulness that would make us acceptable for a holy and just and righteous God? There is nothing that we can do to earn that, to satisfy that. That is why we needed a mediator. That is why we have a mediator. That is why we have Jesus. 
So many of us, I expect in this room, need to recognize what Jesus has done on your behalf. That's not license to sin or any of those things. That's the license to say, I can't do enough, Lord. I give my life. I put my hope fully in only what you could do. You are the only one that could atone for my sin and that could mediate the relationship between me and God. And you have done that. Believe in that. Believe that Jesus did pay it all. Believe that what he did on the cross when his blood was shed, it was a covering for you for all time and eternal redemption. And when we do that, it's pretty amazing what happens. When we begin to worship Jesus, when we begin to recognize what he has done, when we get, begin to see his work on our behalf, accept him as our mediator, worship begins to overflow. Worship becomes the response. I've heard it said once before, so many of us are trying to be obedient in order to make our way to God. What we need to recognize is that through Christ, we have full acceptance to enter into relationship with God and obedience flows out of that acceptance, not to receive it. Stop trying to find obedience or to do something in order to be accepted by God when only Christ would be the satisfactory. Guess what he's not gonna say to you? Yeah, you showed up to church enough that you can sit down at my right hand now. He's not doing that. Jesus shed his blood to secure for us an eternal covenant. And Jesus is the one who sat down at the right hand of the Father. But as God the Father said, his sacrifice is all that I require. His sacrifice was enough. So as the worship team begins to lead us in just a moment, I'm just gonna invite us, if you just bow your heads with me right now. I wanna invite us into a time of prayer. And perhaps you just need to confess to God right now. Spend some time confessing to the Lord. I have tried to atone for my own sin. I have tried to in some way balance the scales of my sinfulness opposed to maybe some good works. God knows, but just confess to him that you've not accepted the once and for all final sacrifice that Jesus made for us. I know there are some in this room who have perhaps spent much of their life, maybe some younger ones, at least a few years of their life, trying to do what looked right to please man, whether that's mom and dad, whether that's a friend, a neighbor, a pastor thinking if I just do this, then they'll accept me. And you need to believe this morning. Today needs to be a day of salvation for you where you finally believe and recognize that what Jesus purchased for you was an eternal redemption, was a cleansing of your conscience. And through belief in him that you have been made new. 
So even as the worship team starts to sing, you might just need to be seated. Just allow the Holy Spirit of God to speak. Let's just spend a few moments together in prayer. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.